Turn to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 23. My wife leaned over to me as uh, I was finishing up and she just shared a word right there that she'd received. And, and I, I believe it to be the word of the Lord. She said, when that tree gets cut down, what we need to do is we just need to cut it and form the cross out of that tree. <laughs> can we do that? Where's my carpenters? Can we do Hey, Noah, can, can we take a raw tree like that and make a cross out of it somehow? It doesn't have to be fancy. We'll figure out a way. I, got, I know I got some guys just itching to get their chainsaws out somehow. So, yeah, man. I, 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 oh God, God only knows what will happen when we loose men with chainsaws. Anything that's loud and has smoke coming off it, they love. All right. 2 Samuel 23, are you there? Come on, find it. You want to find it. You're going to want to mark this. 2 Samuel 23, I'm going to begin reading in just a moment from verse 8. And I've entitled the message this morning, Questions on the Way to Destiny. Questions on the Way to Destiny. 2 Samuel 23, verse 8. These are some really of my favorite passages, believe it or not. It reads like this. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Basabeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino, the Isnite. I guess Adino was easier than Josheb Bashabeth. Adino the Iznite because he had killed 800 men at one time. And after him was Eleazar the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel had retreated. He arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to plunder. Verse 11, and after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herarite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils Really, lentils are like a bean. Some people have described it as a, as a pea. Lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines. But Shammah stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. And I want to talk just a moment or two on what I've entitled Questions on the Way to destiny. You know, parts of the story of David are well known to many of us. Um, some of us know instantly in the life of David how he was watching sheep in the sheep field and the prophet came by Samuel, called him out after looking at all of his brothers and saying they, they were not the ones God had called to be king. But he knew there was one more and it was David in a sheep field. And we know the story of David being called out the sheep field and, and being anointed King. We know the story of David and Goliath and how none of the armies of Israel, none of the men would step out, including Saul, to face the great Goliath. And yet here comes little David with a slingshot and he picked up five smooth stones, one of which had Goliath's name on it. We know a little bit about David's kingship. We know a little bit that he was uh, considered to be a, a great king. We also know, unfortunately, about his failure and about how when he should have been out on the battlefield warring. In fact, the scripture said in the time that kings go out to battle, he was sitting in his palace. Actually, he was up 
on the roof staring over it trying to catch Bathsheba taking a bath. And we know where that led him as well. And so we know David's greatness. We know his, his frailties. We know a lot about the story of David. However, when we get to 2 Samuel, and, and I do believe that in all likelihood Samuel was the one that, that wrote these particular words, but Samuel had to have been listening to David begin to reminisce about those days that he had in the caves of Adullam and the men that would begin to surround him in those caves as they would be used in unbelievable, over-the-top, miraculous ways and that those times would be used by God in order to work in them and mold them into the men who would eventually become all of His right-hand men as He ruled in the kingdom there from Jerusalem. And I, I suspect David was reflecting back to some courageous times in those caves at Adullam. You know, it's a funny thing about the memory. Whenever you begin to think back, you tend to remember with fondness all the adventure. Isn't that true? When you think back to, to days gone by, you think back to the excitement. You may even think back to the tales of courage that you or someone else had concerning those times. But isn't it interesting how we tend to forget the anxiety? We tend to forget the worry. We tend to forget the fear that you had at the time that you lived out that amazing moment. Isn't that a remarkable thing about the mind? You remember all the good stuff and you tend to forget all the bad stuff. And so as David is reflecting here, I'm sure he's thinking about all these wonderful, courageous things. But we don't, we don't hear any of the residual or ancillary stuff that may be going around in the middle, let's say, of standing in the midst of your lentil patch, your pea patch, and you're watching 800 raging Philistines running at you. Everybody wants a great testimony. Few want to forge it for themselves. We like to hear the story, but nobody wants to be the story. But it was in these caves and it was through these stories and these happenings that God forged a nation of new leaders. It was in these incredible acts of courage that God would raise up these people that I just read you with names that are hard to pronounce. He raised them up as nation shakers and world changers. And it's here that David is fondly reminiscing where destiny was forged. These were the days that the future of a kingdom was being written. Don't think that the kingdom was being written the day they marched into Jerusalem. The kingdom was being written in the caves of Adullam, where all this forging and courageous activity was taking place. Now, contrary to what you may think, your future is forged in the moment of adversity. I'll say that again. Your future is forged in the moment of adversity. God uses adversity and He uses battles to groom you for destiny. So when you're facing adversity, don't let it discourage you or cause you to despair. It's the training ground for greatness. It was in the life of these men, some of which I just read to you, who had originally come to David. The Bible says there were 400 of them that came to the caves of Adullam. The Scripture tells us that these men were what I call 3D individuals. The Bible tells us they were in distress, they were in debt, 
and they were discontent. Now, I don't know about you, but I could qualify for that list. They weren't much when they came to the caves of Adullam. All they had was just themselves. I'm sure they went out there and, and they heard the vision that David had. They, they knew that God was in the midst of all that. They didn't have much to offer. Obviously, they didn't have much to lose because who'd leave what you had to lose in order to go live in caves? But yet, there they were. And it was while they were living in these caves and sleeping with their head on rocks and all the, the difficulties and the, 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 the challenges and the, the, the battles and all of those things that were going on. And the whole time I suspect as they're sitting in the cave, they're wondering, what, oh God, are you up to? What are you doing here? It seems like you spoke through your word. We, we, we heard the prophetic utterances and yet here we are in this cave and we don't get it. And what they couldn't see beyond the ceiling of the cave was God was forging a new nation. He was changing them into leaders who would set the agenda of the world. They would come and they would give leadership to Israel and its culture for years to come. And they did it so faithfully, listen to this, that the Davidic kingdom, David's kingdom, is the only kingdom referenced in all of Scripture that can even begin to model or mirror what the Messiah's kingdom would eventually be. These were the men. These were the people. These were the families that were being forged in this atmosphere in order to be the ones that God would point to and say, those are the ones that will look most like my son's kingdom. That's pretty impressive stuff, huh? Of course, it didn't look too impressive when they're going to sleep in a dark, stinky, damp cave. I have said on numerous occasions that I believe our destiny as individuals and as a church is being forged in the very days we are walking in. You see, I have enough time under my belt now and enough mileage on my shoes to know how this works. You see, I can remember, and I've said this before, the old cave at Fort Johnson Civic Center. You remember the cave, some of you do. There was ever a cave of a doolum that just about fit the description right there. I remember the hotel and I remember Bonnie Callaghan. I remember Bonnie taking the kids down to the hotel rooms and doing children's church down there as they bounced from bed to bed. I remember asking the bank for $75,000 just to help us out do some renovation. And they looked at me and said, no, we, we, you're too new for even $75,000. And then we raised $85,000 in one Sunday as a people. I remember renovating this place. I remember how dark and dusty and gross and oh, it was terrible this place and we came in here with our masks and everything on and, and we and we did the the demolition and all those stories look at where we're at today I remember personally, and some of you can link to these personal stories. I remember when, when I, I didn't have five dollars in my pocket and I had to live two weeks on five dollars and all we could do is go buy milk and outdated Kraft macaroni and cheese. And we ate macaroni and, 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 and we got some tea, some cheap tea that, you know, all you need is water and put it in the, just there, you got tea. I remember rider truck, you've heard these stories, getting on a rider truck 
in Oakland, California, $300 in my pocket, following the will of God across this nation, only to find that God was there waiting for me all the time. I remember the stories back of, of the, the working of the three jobs and the, the mowing of lawns on the weekend and, 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 and then you know, doing custodial work and, and living. I remember living in 800 square feet with my two boys. Kaylin wasn't with us yet. 800 square feet with our kids and, and, and having to have a Christmas where I had $100. I was only able to save $100 for everybody that we were supposed to give gifts to. Can you say have mercy? Isn't that a great story? Oh, living it though. That's a whole different story. Makes for a great sermon, but it sure makes for a tough moment. Some of you, some of you have incredible testimonies here this morning. Some of you can think back to some financial breakthrough that you've had and God came through for you. Some of you have experienced His healing touch. Some of you have experienced open doors. Some of you have experienced relationships that worked out. I mean, there are hundreds, I suspect, of testimonies here that if we could write them down or share them or read them, we would all go, woo, isn't that a great story? They're wonderful stories to hear. My children to this day will oftentimes come and say to mom or to dad, hey, tell us that, tell us that $5 macaroni story again. And they'll want to hear the $5 macaroni story or the rider truck story and, and where he was riding in the rider truck and all those other sorts of things. But we forget, we forget, we love the story, but we forget how we felt when we saw the Philistine coming at us. Isn't that true? Great story knocking off all these Philistines in your pea patch, but we forget the feeling of that Philistine running at us. We forget what it felt like when debt collectors were calling us on the phone. And we forget what we felt like when we were wondering where our next meal was even going to come from. And, and when the kids were in the hospital and how was Tracy going to get to work so she could help make some money. And yet who was going to stay with them in the hospital? Not to mention the hospital bill eating up what little resource we had. We forget about the detours and the things that were pulled out from under us and the distractions and the disappointments. Isn't it wonderful that our memories have been graciously erased from those moments when we were sitting there in our cave going, oh my God, what are you doing? God is forging you into something. And we're reminded, praise God, that some of the exploits of David's men are here to remind us, I believe, of three questions that I believe we need to ask when we're facing a challenge. Now, I just shared with you, there's a couple challenges we face. Now, they're not insurmountable, but they're challenges that we face as a people. But can I just suggest that there are probably some folks sitting in here this morning that on a personal level, you're facing some challenges. You got some Philistines looking at you. In fact, they're all, they're all betting on how long it's going to take to knock you out of your pea patch. And there are three questions I just want us to ponder this morning as we're moving towards destiny, as we're moving to this purpose that God has for us as individuals and for us all. Three questions, and it's this one, number one. I get it right out of these stories of these men. Number one, is there anything in your life worth fighting for? 
I believe that's the first question you have to ask. Is there anything in your life worth fighting for? Now, I didn't get to read to you all the exploits that were recorded concerning these mighty men. But they all involved some mighty act, some brave deed, some courageous action. And contrary to some people's perspective, there's a whole lot of fighting that goes on in Scripture. For those of you that have read the Bible, have you ever noticed that? There's a lot of fighting that goes on there. Now, now let me just say this quickly, that, that as Christians, our battle's no longer with flesh and blood. So you understand that people aren't the problem. It's the spirits that are controlling people that are the problem. And our weapons of warfare are not carnal or fleshly. But they're divinely powerful for the destruction of strongholds. And so, so when I talk about fighting, I'm not, I'm not saying go out of here and pick a fight with somebody. But I am saying that there's something inside of you that has to rise up in the spirit. That has to begin to put into motion the things that God has given to us as weapons, spiritual weapons for our warfare. And I want to ask you the question, is there anything in your life that's worth fighting for? You see, the men that I read to you were all in a fight for some reason. Now, the only one we know for certain the reason is this guy by the name of Shama. He stood in the middle of his barley field and he was determined that he was going to defend this barley field with his life. Now, that must have been one more barley field. Because if you'll consider it in those days, which was nomadic in its existence, he could have just said, here, take this one. I'll just I'll just find me another plot of land somewhere else. But that wasn't the case with Shama. That was his pea patch. That, that, was, that, was, that was what God had given to him. You see, when, when, the, when the children of Israel went into the promised land, they, they were parceled out land with regards to their inheritance. This wasn't just any piece of property. This just wasn't dirt and soil. This was God's promise to me. And he was determined he was going to defend what God had given to him. I can hear him. He's saying, this is my pea patch. He's probably talking to the 800 Philistines that are there. This is my pea patch. It may not be as large and as grand as others, but it's mine. God gave it to me. If he tells me to leave it, if he tells me to sell it, if he tells me to give it up, I'll do any of those things. But no enemy is going to take it. In fact, literally, he was saying over my dead body. You remember Charleston Heston raising the, when he was talking about Second Amendment issues, and he said, out of my cold, dead fingers, as he raises his rifle. Well, I'm not talking about, you know, our Second Amendment rights. I'm talking about the promise of God. Over my dead body, over my dead body. You ever hear the saying, the old saying, it's not worth beans? I often wondered if this is the passage they got it from. Because the old phrase, it's not worth beans, literally means it's not worth fighting for. Well, apparently Shama had not heard that old saying. Because these beans were important to God. And because they were important to God, it was important to Shama. And can I just suggest to you that there are a lot of pea patches in this room this morning that are being contended for. There's the pea patch of people's health. There's the barley field of finance. You know, there's the field of marriages and families. You just, you, it's not much. It's, it's not as important as maybe others. It may not look as a big a deal as other people's, but it's your pea patch. 
And truth is, listen to me, your future hinges on whether or not you choose to arise and win that battle. You're collaring destiny, destiny, future, future. I'm a nation shaker, world changer. Let me tell you, God is foraging you in the midst of this adversity and challenge you are in that if you'll win this challenge, a door to your future will open. Most of the time, these men were outnumbered. They were outmatched. They were outclassed. But what distinguished them was this one trait. They weren't given up without a fight. Your marriage, listen to me, is worth fighting for. Your kids are worth fighting for. Your finances are worth fighting for. Your health is worth fighting for. I know if Jesus tarries, I'm going to die. But I'm not going to die just riddled with disease. I'm going to go out of here strong. I'm going to keep confessing. You say, well, what happens if you get sick? Well, what happens if the Philistines show up? I'll stand in my pea patch and I'll fight them off until I die. See, your destiny hinges on how you're going to answer these questions. You have a great future, but, but your future is being forged at this very moment. I think, because I pastor this place, I think legacy is a lot like Shama's pea patch. It's not the biggest pea patch in the area. It may not be the grandest. It may not be the glitziest. It may not be what other people think are important. You could go somewhere else, but it's my pea patch. See? And once you, once you understand whose pea patch it is, and it's not mine by way of it, just it's mine. God gave me this pea patch. God established it. God has sustained it. There's some things you can lay your life down for. Is there anything we're fighting for? Yes, great victories only come when you're facing a great challenge. And when you look at your Goliath, you, can, you can't say, oh, it's a Goliath. He's so big. He's so large. What you need to say is, where's my stone? I can't miss him. Is there anything worth fighting for? Number two, second question. Are you willing to stand and not run? Are you willing to stand and not run? There was a, Pastor Larry told a couple great stories when I was away at conference. And one of the stories he told, and I may not tell it exactly right, but I think you'll get the point. Was that there was two dogs and they were separated by a fence. One was like a Jack Russell Terrier, kind of a little dog. And the other one was a large dog, a Doberman Pinscher. And that Jack Russell Terrier dug his way through that fence and got on the other side of that fence. And he went after that Doberman pincer. And that Doberman grabbed that Jack Terrier and just, just laid into him and threw him around. And until finally that Jack Russell Terrier, just, he had to go back and go back under his fence. The next day, the same story. That, that Terrier went under the fence. That Doberman pincer grabbed him just made a mess of that Russell Terrier, just, just literally just shred him until finally he was worn out and that Jack Russell Terrier went back under the fence and left the Doberman alone. Third day it happened and that it same, same thing happened day after day after day. The, the, the Terrier kept losing. Listen to this. The, the, the Jack Russell Terrier kept losing that fight with the Doberman until one day when that Jack Russell Terrier went underneath that fence, the Doberman saw him and ran. Now, why was that? It's because the Doberman decided it wasn't worth the fight. 
Now there's a story to be told in both those dogs. The one who wins is the one who refuses to leave the battlefield. That's how it should be with us. The enemy may knock you around. I understand the enemy is powerful. The, the enemy is one that can't just be easily dismissed. The enemy is the enemy. I understand all that the devil has at his disposal. And there have been times I have been target practice for the enemy. But there's going to come a moment that you dig yourself one more time under that fence. And when he sees who showed up, he says, it ain't worth the fight anymore. They just keep coming. God keeps raising them back up. He keeps healing them and helping them and, and, and making sure their wounds are covered over. And they just keep coming back. I am out of here. We read that Eleazar fought for so long, the Scripture says, that his hand stuck to the sword. Literally, after the battle was over, they had to pry his hands off the sword. Now, I should admit this, but I, I don't work in the yard a lot. But every now and then we'll get this, this yard working spirit on us. And we'll get the shovel or the spade out. And, you know, we'll be digging and, and, and getting our yard in order and just, you know, for, for a good day, we'll just work on it. And, and, you know, I'll put gloves on because you don't want blisters. I'm smart enough to know you don't want a blister. And I'll put gloves on and work at that. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but at the end of a day that you got a shovel in your hand, have you ever been done working and you take your gloves off and your glove just remains like that? It's just stuck in that position. See, your leather glove, your leather glove shows that you're not going to let your hand off of that thing. Well, it says here that Eleazar fought for so long that his, that his hand was, was stuck to the sword. Ephesians 6.17, post that, will you? Ephesians 6.17 says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, the sword of the Spirit, it tells us it's the Word of God, but it's, it's not just logos, it's the rhema of God. You know, Logos means objective word. You know, Scripture is Logos. Jesus is Logos. As He's referred to as the Word because that's objective word. Rhema literally means the thing which the Lord has spoken. That which God has said. That's Rhema. And Paul says with regards to our weapons, that when we pick up a sword, we pick up the sword of that which has been spoken or announced by God. See, some of you in the room this day have promises that God has spoken. I know for myself, I have some promises that have come through prayer. I have some prophecies that have been spoken over me uh, through different venues and different servants of the Lord. I have scripture that's been quickened to my heart like God has spoken it to me. Certain things concerning my life, my household, this local church. These things that God has quickened and enlivened, that He has raimed to me, are like a sword in my hand. You see, I'm just not fighting this morning for a piece of property. Listen to me very carefully. Whether we ultimately put a church out there or not, I mean, that's in God's hands. I mean, everything to me is fluid. God, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But here's what the deal is. The deal is that there are promises that God has spoken. There's a future that God has declared. And I'm not going to let go of those things that God has spoken. I'm going like a sword in my hand to raise it up to the enemy and saying, if God wants it, he can have it. But you sure enough aren't going to take it. 
I'm just not fighting for dirt and soil. I'm fighting for a future. Some of you need to get this in your spirit. This isn't just about bricks and mortar. This is about your children and your grandchildren. It's your future. When you're fighting for your family, you're fighting for kids you haven't even seen yet. I've got great-grandchildren on the way. Hallelujah. I believe that. I've got great-grandchildren that are coming my direction. I know i still got to get through the grandchildren part yet. And we're working on trying to hurry. But anyway... I've got some great-grandchildren out there too. I plan on seeing my quiver, seeing my family tree. I'm fighting. Let me tell you, every time I get on my knees, every time I read God's Word, every time I make a decision to walk in His ways and to walk in uprightness and integrity and character and to do my best to live all out for God, as I do that, it's a sword in my hand that's not just for me, it's for those that follow after me. That was, that was Shammah's pea patch. It wasn't just his pea patch, it was his kids' pea patch. And his grandkids' pea patch. And his grandchildren's pea patch. They ain't enough Philistines in Philistia to take this pea patch from me. First Timothy 1.18 posts that. It says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. That's a verse some of you need to underline right now. That, that when God has spoken something to you, you can raise that thing up like a weapon in your hand. And you can say, the Lord, I didn't make the Lord say this. I didn't force Him to say this. I didn't manipulate Him to say this. I wasn't in, I wasn't in the line to where I could get that because I wanted it. This is what God has said, and it's a sword in my hand. And again, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh, but I'll be... I'll, I'll, I'll be a son of the Most High God. No enemy is going to take it out of my hand. Some of you have come a long way with your pea patch. You have some sweat equity in your pea patch. I'm amazed that people get divorced after 20, 30 years. Why? Well, I mean, I can kind of understand a year or two. I mean, I could kind of understand. I'm not saying it's right. I can kind of understand. But after 30 years, why would you want to break another one in? You might as well finish the course with the one you got. I'll assure you there's no sense starting over. You got some sweat equity in that thing. Come on, some of you have made financial gains. Some of you have have healings that you've received. You need to stand and refuse to run. I'm not going backwards. I'm going forwards. Question number three, have mercy. Are you asking yourself these questions? Number three, are you willing to defy the odds? Are you willing to defy the odds? Adino the Esnite. How would you like to be named Adino the Esnite? This is my son Adino. I guess it's better than my son Josheb Bashabeth, the Takamite. We just call him Adino for short. So Adino is facing 800 men. Now, can, can I just share this? I, I, you know, I'm not a bookmaker. I don't understand how you make book on things, but 800 to 1. Where would your money be? 800 to 1. 
Those aren't great odds, are they? No, 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 no. That, that, that's, you know, no, that's no UFC battle there, man. 800 to 1. I know where my money's going. But it's interesting that all these guys that I just read, I just read to you three of them, all of them defied the odds. Now, how did they do that? You defy the odds by understanding that the battle is fixed. Are you following me? See, the battle's fixed. See, we win. See, God just asks us to stay in it. I know sometimes it seems like all you're doing is swatting. And it feels like you're going to be doing it the rest of your life. One Philistine after another Philistine after another Philistine. But the key is they stayed in the fight and they defied the odds. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. You may not know this, but I'm just going to let you in on a little secret. There are people in your life. Listen, there are friends that are close friends. There are family members, even close family members. I'm just going to share this with you. You may not know this, but I'm going to tell you this morning. There are people in your life who at some point or another have counted you out. Oh, yeah. They may never have told you that, but they were in a corner somewhere with someone else. They weren't giving you a snowball's chance in Gehenna. That you'd ever amount to anything. That you'd ever press through. That it'd ever be any different. You came in one time announcing some great, great new thing God was saying or doing. And granted, you may not have been perfect. You may not have been consistent. You may not have done everything in times past. And, and, and so they maybe even had reason to think. What was going to be any different this time? They were probably betting with each other in the corner how long this one would last. They counted you out. I know people have counted me out. They've counted us out. But the very ones who counted us out, some of them are out. And we're here, we're still here, we're still standing. There are people who thought that, you know, this whole business of me being called to the ministry was just a phase I was going through. Well, it's been a 33-year phase. I'm still standing. I'm still preaching. Listen, no, nobody, nobody out in the world gives, gives God's odds a chance ever. There are people right now, they're betting that you'll never get out of debt. You'll never salvage the relationship. You'll never beat the cancer. You'll never beat the disease. You'll never beat whatever it is that's in front of you. But God loves to defy the odds. Think about the Bible. How many times God defies the odds? I call them God's odds. Moses facing Pharaoh and then ultimately all the armies of Egypt. Who would you bet on in the natural? Who won? Gideon's army was whittled from 32,000 to 300. That's not the way you, you, you solicit an army. And yet that was what God used to win the battle. Jehoshaphat was outnumbered three to one. Three nations had gathered around little old Israel, outnumbered three to one. And yet God swoops in when the odds were against them and they win the battle. Think about this. Christianity versus the mighty Roman Empire. Christians didn't have anything to their name. They owned no property. They worshipped in the catacombs. There was nothing about them that was even desirable. And yet this ragtag on the other side of the track group of people were the very ones that brought the Roman Empire to its knees. Some of you, including myself, should be dead this morning. 
Somewhere in your life, you were in an accident or you just missed an accident and you should be dead, but you defied the odds and here you are. People said that we wouldn't as a church last two years. Well, we're leading up to birthday number nine. Thank you. Happy birthday to us. Banks wouldn't loan us $75,000 and we saw $85,000 come in. People said, hey, people said, and they may be somewhat right, but I've had people look me in the eye and say, you'll never pastor. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe they're right to some degree, but here I am. We have some battles, but we function under God's odds. You've got some battles. But are you ready to defy the odds? Are you ready to defy what everyone else says is the only way it can happen? This is the only way it'll come to pass. There's no way you loving God, serving God, obeying God, and doing what God has asked you to do. There is no way that'll work. Are you ready to stand in your pea patch and beat those voices and Philistines and words off your life and just simply say, God, it's your pea patch. Here I stand, right or wrong. So help me God. So help me God. I'm going to tell this story and I'm done. Pastor Larry told this story. It was a great story. It was a snake story, though. Now, I have a saying about snakes. The only good snake. That's right. You got it right there. Dead snake. One of the most venomous and, and really one of the largest snakes in the world is the South American Bushmaster. You can go Google it later today and and you can see pictures of it. You can go to YouTube and see pictures of it as well. Bushmaster, it's not only a large snake, it's it's a venomous snake. If you're bit by a Bushmaster, it's literally seconds before you're paralyzed and and you'll eventually die. And, And there's not many, for whatever reason, many Bushmaster snakes in captivity. So a group of people from a zoo went into South America, and they wanted to get them a Bushmaster. And so they got guides. In fact, it was difficult to even get a guide because in some remote areas, just, there's, there's great fear and superstition regarding Bushmasters. And so they couldn't even get a guide to lead them out of the town because they felt like if, if they were to point out a Bushmaster and, and they were to capture him, that it would cause the snakes to be upset and all the snakes would invade the village. So they couldn't even find a guide to help get them to find a Bushmaster. And then finally, they were able to pay and, and talk a man into doing it. And he would only go as far as, as a little bit down the road. And then he pointed a tree and he said, you see up there in the tree, that, that's him. And then he walked off. They were able through the means and the wherewithal in order to capture this large Bushmaster snake. They put him in this crate, got the crate on top of it and was able to to, to secure it down and, and, and the snake, they could actually see the snake beginning to, to just push on the crate and the crate would make motions with that snake inside of it. And they're going to have to ship it back to America. And so they took the crate to the ship and they put it on the ship and they would uh, put it in the lower cargo hold and they would go and check on the snake on occasion. And about halfway through the trip as they were checking on the snake down in this particular crate, it was uh, reported that the top had come off and the snake had gotten out and they couldn't find him anywhere near that crate. So they began a great search on that ship 
for that snake. They started at the top and they began to make their way down. And as they made their way down, they finally figured out that the only place that snake could be was at the bottom of that ship. So they went down to the furthest place at the bottom of that ship. And there in the bottom of that great, that great uh, container-type ship, there was, about, there was about two to three foot of water that covered the entire bottom of the ship. So that snake was somewhere in that water. So two men had to jump down in that water. And they just kind of kicked around in the water, hoping to find that snake. And as they were moving through the bottom of the ship, kicking through the water, they finally noticed, they finally found that snake. That snake was towards the front. It actually was curled up. It was wrapped around like a, a, a metal anchor type area. It was, a, it was something you would secure something to, a giant anchor. It was wrapped around that thing, curled up. They debated as to who was going to go un, uncurl it. But then they found out it was dead. The Bushmaster died. And for a moment, they couldn't figure out why. Until they noticed, sitting right next to it, was a cat. It was a mama cat. With her two kittens on either side of her. That cat had killed that gigantic, venomous snake. Why did it kill the snake? Well, it had two babies. You don't mess with a mama cat. You say, well, how, how, did, how did the cat do it? I don't know that they ever figured out how the cat did it, but the point of the story is this. If there's a big enough reason why, you'll do whatever it takes. Isn't that true? If there's a big enough reason why, you'll do whatever it takes. You'll figure out how. The odds don't matter anymore. You see, God will do miracles for people. Who are like these mighty men. You know what? We could learn a lot of lessons from cats, can't we? See, this isn't about this, this no longer is about geography and the future and where we're gonna meet. It's about, listen, all that we face and all that you face, it's all about legacy. Not not the name that's on the church. We're talking about your heritage and your future. It's about your family. It's about whether that relationship is salvaged. It's about whether that person is healed. It's about whether that door will be opened. I know right now that there are some things that I am planning that I may never fully enjoy. I understand right now, I have vision inside of me that I am planning that I may never get to see with my own eyes. But my grandchildren, God willing, will walk in them. You following me? Shammah wasn't standing just for him. I'm quite sure Shammah would have given up his life gladly in the service of David and the service of his Lord. I'm sure he would have gladly given up his life. But when he was swinging his sword or his staff, when he was swinging it against all those invading Philistines, that's not what he was thinking. He wasn't thinking about his own life. He was thinking about those that would come behind him. It was their pea patch too. See, it's not about you. You see, you think what you're facing is about you. How, I, I'm going to say this gently. It's not about you. It's about those that come after you. 
This, this place really isn't about me. It's about those that come after me, those that come after us. See, see we're, we're establishing something that needs, if Jesus tarries, to be a voice for decades, maybe centuries. It's about our future. Just some questions that maybe you'll ask yourself on your way to destiny. Hey, will you stand with me for just a moment? I'm going to pray.